In a world where talent is evenly distributed, the venture capital is concentrated in coastal silos, smart startup money is heading for the mid-continent. Welcome to the MidCon Markup, a podcast that uncovers the inspiring stories of our visionary tech entrepreneurs and the investors who believe in them. I'm your host, Cody Merrill with Cortado Ventures. Listen, learn, and make your MidCon Markup. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Mid-Continent Venture Capital Podcast. Today, we're lucky to have Blake Bixler with Senselytics. So let's just hop right into it. Uh, Blake, can you tell us a little bit about Senselytics and then tell us about your early childhood background, education, early career? What led to this moment? Absolutely. Thanks for having me on here, Cody. So once I go through all that, you're probably going to say, wait, how did you become the CEO of Synslytics again? <laughs> what Synslytics does is we have an AI platform that empowers engineers and energy to prevent costly failures that previously weren't predictable so that they can reduce risk and increase decision confidence. And so a, a way of thinking about that might be like pipeline failures or ruptures or things that cause damage financially, environmentally, and potentially even to human safety. And so those are the kinds of things we're trying to identify earlier where today's technology is not able to. Got it. So that's a great nutshell. Now, walk us back to the very beginning. What was early childhood like? What did you want to do? Was there any moment of inspiration? What's the backstory here? Sure. So I grew up in rural Oklahoma in the northwest part of of the state in a small town called Winoka. Um, I wanted to be a major league baseball player, and that's what I wanted to do until it was very, very apparent that even though left-handed people can generally make it as pitchers, if they have a pulse, I guess my pulse was too weak. And so I... I, that, I was not cut out for that. But so I grew up on a farm, was very involved in FFA, lots of extracurriculars, baseball and basketball. When I graduate, I grew up, let's see, I was the fourth generation on that family farm, had one younger brother, went to Oklahoma State and got an agribusiness degree. That's kind of when I late at Oklahoma State is when I realized I wanted to do something in the startup or venture capital space. I couldn't exactly figure out how to get into that. The best thing I could figure was I should go to business school. That'll help me to get there. So I thought, I'm going to short circuit this thing. I am going to go straight to business school out of undergrad without working for a couple years first, and I'm going to skip that entry-level job. So I went to Ohio State to get an MBA degree, and that was when uh, Lehman Brothers crashed and the financial meltdown And I ended up with probably a worse job than I could have gotten straight out of undergrad in terms of what the pay and what my opportunities were. And so it took me a good two years to get to where that MBA degree was even worth it. So my skipping didn't actually help. Uh, But I, I had determined like early on, I was never going to work in energy. But when I'd moved back to Oklahoma City uh, with my wife after being in Ohio, it became, uh, there, there just weren't that many opportunities in, uh, this was 2010 that weren't energy. And so I started working at Chesapeake and ended up falling in love with energy. And, and that eventually led me to do a midstream startup because I still had this desire for startups. And after that was successful, I wanted to get more into the technology side. 
And so when Synslytics uh, came across the desk while I was working as an entrepreneur in residence at Cortado, Nathaniel and I thought, this is unique technology. Like this is different than most of the AI platforms that we've seen. Like th this knows how to handle what people would traditionally call outliers or what they would just kind of scrub from their data set because it's not understandable. We could do something with this. And they were looking for a CEO. I'm not sure what in my agribusiness or MBA degree qualifies me to lead an AI startup company. I, I kind of think of it as we've got really, really brilliant technical minds. And my job is to try to simplify enough that we can explain to other people what we're doing. So your huge value add is that you have an understanding of legacy industries. You know how business people think, how they speak, how they communicate. And the AI product that Synslytics is developing is about transforming legacy industries. So that seems like... That's a good summary. After you think about it a little bit, it does make sense. <laughs> what has been your experience as an entrepreneur raising money in the mid-continent region? It's challenging because there are only so many venture capital funds out there. So, you know, being a part of Cortado, have Cortado, having Cortado lead that seed round was really, really valuable. Because I, I would say there's kind of two things. There's one, there's not that much VC here. Two, if you go try to pitch to the guys on the coast, they're kind of like, eh, if it's really good AI, somebody in Silicon Valley would have done it or somebody in Boston would have developed it. So they're a little more skeptical of, of things that are built here. So it's important to be able to access your first investment dollars relatively close to where you're from. And then after you achieve sufficient scale series B and beyond, then it ceases to matter where your business started. You'll have national access to capital. Is that the hope? <laughs> that is the hope. I'm not there yet, but yes, I think that once you get to where you're hitting certain revenue metrics, then it's no longer as much about the team and the idea, and it's more about what the business is generating at that point. All right, can you tell us the origin story of Synslytic. So a lot of startups, the founder is the person who also has the skill set to be the CEO. And then it's a little bit more organic of a story. You were an entrepreneur in residence, found some technology that was really interesting, and they were looking for an executive, and there was a marriage. What was the development story like for the technology before you? Our founder and uh, CTO, Robbie Chakraborty, he had this idea that he told me really developed while he was working on his PhD at Michigan State, where he had this theory that anytime we see something in nature, like if you saw a landslide or a, an earth or felt an earthquake, it seems like it happens suddenly. But what really is happening is there, there's nothing abrupt in nature. It's all just coming to this conclusion from a lot of causes that happened way in the past. And his idea was that there are a lot of issues out there that are not solved in industry, specifically geology, biology, and chemistry, because AI doesn't know how to track what happened in the past that, that far back, or if it had a different time lag, whether that's two hours or two years. And then secondarily, that AI was on a path where it was going more data-driven, obviously, 
um, but not taking advantage of those experts that are in companies that have worked on something for 30 or 40 years and really understand it well. And they understand extreme behaviors well. So where a human mind would outperform AI would be, you know, if you, if you said, what do you have for breakfast today? Well, you know, the computer can, re I mean, remember anything you put into it. You might not remember what you had for breakfast. If you've ever had food poisoning, you probably remember exactly what you ate and where you got it from. That's how the human mind works. It's a, it's like a, a method, a survival method. And so experts are really good because they spend a lot of time thinking about why did that extreme condition happen? What caused it? How do we prevent that next time? And so they have an understanding of these things are relevant in this situation where these extreme behaviors can cause something else. Robbie's idea was that if we put this in with the other correlation typed features of AI, then we can develop something that's taking the best of human knowledge and data analysis to really get a great understanding of how do these subtle things in nature happen that we can't predict with today's AI. So how many other AI products are trying to solve a similar problem to what you're working on? So in some places, there, in some of our use cases, none. In some, there are several. And in some, what I would say is they're trying to solve the kind of middle of the road. Here's the expected behavior. And they're just tossing out the outliers or the, what we would call random events. But those random events, um, for example, corrosion is something we're working on right now. Well, the French energy company EDF had massive stress corrosion issues on their nuclear reactor fleet in France, um, the, the pipelines that cool those reactors. It cost them $29 billion in 2022 from all the stress corrosion going on across their reactor fleet. So throwing out what doesn't fit down the middle leaves a ton of value and a ton of risk. Those are the things that get people fired or, you know, cause massive financial or environmental damage. And so there are not a lot of companies really going after those kinds of things, but we believe that is where the value at is at that AI has not figured out yet. So your focus on prevention. Yes. Um, one of the experiences that I've had working in remote medicine and just various types of medical products is that it's really hard to get customers to invest in prevention. They have a cut, you can sell them a Band-Aid. They have a fire, you can buy a bucket of water from you. How do you get these organizations to say, in the long run, an ounce of prevention really is going to be worth a pound of cure? You need an internal champion that has seen what can go wrong and to understand how um, unpreventable it was in the past and how dramatic it is. So you could take, for example, a lot of the things that go wrong. If somebody wanted to average them across all their asset base, they'd say, oh, well, it's only this much per asset. So it sounds like a small deal. But the thing is, the year that happens, it's critical financially it's reputationally very damaging. Um, it's, it's the kind of thing 
that nobody, you know, you don't want to be a part of that as the company will be the, you know, your scarring memory of, of that time in your, your life. And so it's really about finding someone that understands, uh, to use the analogy of, you know, you don't want holes in the boat below the waterline that understands that's where that's at. And that prevention, it's that dollar cost, plus it's all of the damage that's going to come along with that, all the distraction that's going to come along with that. Um, but that, I mean, that is a challenge because normally you've got to have a, a champion, somebody technical that's willing to work with you and somebody in the upper management that's going to say, this is something we want to address. So you have to have a technical person who can understand the wherewithal and help translate. You have to have a risk management associated professional with clout within the organization that will really be your primary champion. And then ultimately those two people have to filter up to a decision maker, a CEO, an executive that says, it's worth it to make this investment. Yeah, somebody somebody with the power to write the check. With the types of problems that you are solving, I imagine that your customers are rather large. You don't have small under-resourced companies with billions of dollars worth of assets that could be impacted by natural events. That is correct, because when we're piloting the technology, we've got to have somebody compensate us for all the time that we're spending on that. And the R&D budgets live in bigger organizations. So we've had successful pilots with, with Shell and with Chevron. Um, and we hope what we're building is a tool that then can be used across more medium-sized businesses. But ultimately, the development is going to happen where there's a technology innovation budget. So is it, is it sort of like the automobile industry? where innovation happens at Formula One, and then it filters down to traditional commercial vehicles? That's a good analogy. That's that's probably right. I hope it's a little faster, but yes. And then can you walk us through just where Syncylytics is to date? How many rounds of financing have you guys had to get to this point? And then from this point to your next financing round, what are the milestones that you feel like you need to achieve to be in the strongest fundraising position? Sure. So in May of 2022, we raised a seed round led by Cortado. That was about a million dollar round. And at that time, we were still working on two products, one for Shell, and we were piloting one for Chevron. The one was Shell, where we were basically working on offshore fluid sampling, determining whether it was contaminated or not. We were very successful, but we don't feel like that's necessarily the best market to chase right now. So we're focused a little more on what we're doing with Chevron and with some other parties where we're working on providing better estimations of the reservoir from mud gas logs that are traditionally considered inaccurate, and then building out a corrosion application. So. We've raised that seed round. We're doing a seed extension round right now. That's that's in vogue right now, but I guess because of the uh, situation raising capital and the dynamics of the market have changed quite a bit. What used to be a Series A level revenue, you, you now need several times that to kind of hit the Series A. So our objective is to raise this seed extension round that's about $1.5 million this fall and then get through... 2024 and in early 2025, be at a revenue run rate of a few million dollars where we start looking attractive to Series A 
investors. And so to do that, we've got to commercialize what we've piloted with Chevron, and then we've got to go prove ourselves in the corrosion monitoring space so that that technology is able to start generating revenue in the first half of 2024. So when you're talking about corrosion monitoring, are you pulling data from historical events of how different pipelines or whatever have corroded mixed in with current weather and then you have a new formula or do you also have sensors on the assets that are contributing to the data that's being crunched in your model? So SenseLytics itself does not have any hardware. We don't bring any proprietary sensors or, or anything um, to what we do. What we're doing is taking whatever data that customer's ingesting. So in corrosion, they basically run what are called smart pigs or inline inspection tools that that take measurements and readings inside the pipeline, but those are only used every once every five to 10 years, depending on the kind of pipeline. But those are, you need uh, one or two of those runs in the past to know what things look like. Then you're taking other periodic samples of the gas or liquid to see what's showing up in there. And then you do have some near real-time data in terms of flow rates and pressures and you're evaluating all of those um, along with all the subject matter expert theory that we put into code and using that to determine, hey, there's a little corrosion here, but this it's kind of growing at a slow rate. It's not a, a big deal versus this is set up to grow exponentially and you need to intervene. So the secret sauce of what you're working on is your ability to look at a very wide swath of historical information from similar problems and then incorporate uh, new data from sensors that are being provided by the client. And then you also mentioned a third prong, which is you've, you guys have a lot of academic research that you've committed to code and that's part of the proprietary model or maybe say it in a different way. Sure. So I, I think we do it. We've got a few things that are unique. One uh, that I should have touched on earlier is that we're able to create AI models in what I would call a data light environment. Most AI is built with thousands, tens of thousands of data sets. In a lot of the things we work on, there are not that many data sets that are available that are relevant, either because they haven't seen the occurrence tens of thousands of times, or it's not shared across the industry. And so it's very hard to build an AI model that's going to account for all these different situations with a handful of data sets. So we're generally building these models off of eight to 10 data sets. As long as we've got some situational diversity so we can see what normal looks like, what different kinds of extreme look like, so that's, that's one half, that's the data. The other half is the subject matter experts. And those normally come from the companies that we're working with. And we're taking their theories about why things happen and putting those to code. That can be something like a formula or it can be something very simple, like as you go deeper in a reservoir, your gas oil ratio decreases. It can be those and anything in between and what that helps us to do is to carve out a lot of different situations so that you can see most of AI is trying to fit data to, or to fit a line, one line to data. 
But what you really see is that these are a lot of different situations that behave differently. And figuring out which situation is relevant, which situation you're in, is really important because that helps you to understand what's coming next. As time increases or as time goes by, is this a situation that's acceptable or is this a situation where things are really going to go off the rail? In a situation where you're trying to make a calculation for, say, a pipeline or dam failure, uh, crop health, something of that nature, walk me through, like, beginning to end, you go to the client, you say, you're having this problem, mm -hmm. you would like to be able to make more informed decisions about this, and then your tool provides them with a greater level of certainty. It's better than the existing actuary tables that they've been making decisions off of. What's the like specific value app? That's a, no, that's a good question. I was kind of had missed that a little bit. So it starts off with a six month pilot and that's going to mean they give us some data sets to train the model and we work with the experts to when we see something that looks abnormal, we say, why is this happening? And it's kind of funny how when you sit down with those experts, they might tell you, I don't know what hypothesis would be relevant to you. But when you start asking them about a situation, it's like the, the floodgates open and the knowledge just starts pouring out. And those things can be put into code. Then towards the about month four or five, once you've trained on eight to 10 data sets, then you go and say, okay, give us a blind test. Don't tell us what's happening. Just say, process this with the model. And we go and process that and we provide interpretations, predictions, estimates, depending on what they're doing for, and you want to do this on historical data where we're, you're blind testing us. So you know the outcome, we don't, and you can see how accurate we are. Now, one of the things that is very different about us, to actually two things that are very different about us versus other AI companies, we are very definitive. I mean, the whole world is probabilistic in terms of trying to predict things, but lots of times, you know, if, if you go to a doctor and they say, there's a 67% chance that you have a terminal illness, but they don't tell you what that is or why that's the case, all that does is send you home to worry at night. It doesn't actually help. We've built this model to where it is taking multiple views of the situation. And if we're right on, if those multiple, multiple views are telling you the same thing, you know you're right. And so then we give a definitive answer, this is going to happen. If we don't do that, if we can't get those multiple views to say the same thing, then we say, we can't interpret this situation. Now that sounds like a bug, but it's actually a feature because if we handle 20 data sets for you and we tell you in 19 situations what's happening and what you need to do, you can rest assured that you know what to do and you've got an accurate reading on those 19. And on the 20th, you either need to go take more data, pay closer attention to that asset, or have the, the subject matter experts that went to go get a PhD in this area, probably because they're very enamored with the strange behaviors in some of these extreme situations, have them dig in on it more. So then their time is better used and you don't end up with a probabilistic model where you've got 
some things with a 70% chance that go wrong and some with an 85% chance that don't end up coming to fruition. So we're, we're more definitive. The other thing is we are based on finding the cause. I told you about going back into time and figuring out what causes things. So when we have that cause, we can provide reasoning. And one of the worst things or the most uncomfortable things for somebody that uses AI in their business is that it's a black box. And so if you're told the AI says this, go, you know, go make this decision, that's not very comforting if it's a big decision you don't know why the AI says that. We're able to provide an explanation for our predictions so that people can increase their decision confidence because they say, this lines up with my understanding, or they can override it if they, you know, feel inclined, they can all, their experts can gather around and say, we don't actually think so. But they have a very informed view from the AI of why it's telling them to do what it is. I think that's a really important part. Um, and one of your differentiating factors is that everybody would much rather, like if you ask somebody a question and they don't know the answer for them to say, I don't know the answer, but I'd be happy to look into it and come back to you than to just completely lie about it. But in terms of decision-making and what a lot of people are utilizing AI for, there is that discomfort with the black box and not knowing why. And if something is a little bit different, not knowing how to extrapolate. And I definitely see the niche that you're, that you're targeting. Yes. So there's actually some situations where people would accept a lower level of accuracy for a greater level of explainability. I mean, if you look at um, what radiologists do, and we've, we've, you know, AI has made a lot of inroads in radiology. It doesn't matter how accurate the AI gets. People want the radiologist involved. They want to know what the radiologist says, even if that radiologist is less accurate than the AI, because they, the radiologist can explain to them. They know they're talking to someone who's going to not just spit out a binary answer. Okay, I got to circle back with the three main sources of data. There's the historical data, and there's the current sensors and operational data. But then you have that very important chunk where you have to work with the experts at the client, and you have to say, tell me all of your possible hypotheses. And then somehow you convert their hypotheses, their heuristics into code. Is that the art of the business? That is. So we've got a lot of patents and a few trade secrets around that. We've actually, Synslytics has six patents and we've got four more pending. So there are some unique ways that we are turning that into code that enables us to make a lot of progress with those things. Okay, I've got some more general questions. Maybe you could give some advice for other entrepreneurs and just reflecting on your total professional experience. In terms of, as an entrepreneur, what is the best money that you have spent? And then what is the worst money that you have spent? So I'm probably having more trouble thinking about the worst money. Uh, the best money is always on talent. When you've got a small firm, you don't have that many people, you just can't accept average. You need exceptional. And so paying up for whoever's exceptional and, and a lot of times for entrepreneurs, that's probably going to be more in the form of equity because you still, 
you can never match what the large firms will do in cash. Um, but, but cheaper is you can't save enough money, um, to offset a, a loss in talent. The worst use of money, that's, that's see, it's kind of situational. I, f- I feel like it's always been either the events or the marketing that I thought would work that didn't work. And I never know what those are until after they happen. And the best you can do is talk to other people that have been in the same situation. I'll probably, I'll say that and figuring out which customers really will buy and which ones will drag you out a long ways to nowhere. What is your method for getting to the bottom of, is this a legit buying sign or is this person just being nice? (laughs) Because if you have an early idea and you don't have something for them to act against immediately, Mm -hmm. it's very easy as a founder to get deluded and to collect pats on the back and to think that that's market validation. What's the method to your madness? I'm still learning. Uh, I'll say I am still learning. I mean, we've we've kind of come up with a, a few things where we don't necessarily think we can always determine that early. But what we want to at least do is make sure that we get something out of that work that we do, even if that does not convert into a purchase. So we want to be able to publish the results we had immediately and very soon after have that client's name on them. Um, We want to work with another company that's in the space that's maybe a service provider that could be a sales channel partner so that even if the initial client gets hung up um, on something or it just things change to where they aren't interested in buying anymore, if you've built a good product, you've got somebody else that will go along for the ride. Um, The other thing is being core to their business. Um, So I've seen this a a few times. There's lots of companies where they might have to deal with corrosion, but if it's one of a plethora of issues they deal with, then you're not going to meet with their top management and you're not going to have their focus. And so what you want to do is get with companies who are either trying to decommoditize what they're doing by providing greater analysis or understanding corrosion is core to their business. And so then you know what those top level decision makers, what they want, as opposed to, because one of the big things that can happen is you can be working with someone who genuinely is interested and somebody above them changes their mind and all of a sudden this is no longer a priority. How do you navigate that situation where you're talking with an internal champion, which you need, you also need the technical champion. How do you navigate that situation where you really want to be talking to the check writer, to the decision maker, because then it's harder for the rug to get swept out from underneath you, but you want the person in between to feel like they're important and that they're a part of this process and that you're not circumventing them. How do you navigate that? I mean, that's, that's extremely challenging. I, I think the, the best way of, of dealing with that is probably to have multiple contacts within your organization, having different primary contacts at the other organization. So most of the contacts, the, the lead on your team goes through that internal champion, but you, you try to somehow set up some lunch, dinner at a conference meeting with whoever that, that check writer is and bring the, 
the person that they're going to be most interested in meeting to kind of develop a little bit of a relationship and find reasons to communicate from time to time so that then you can reach out occasionally. But like you said, you don't, <laughs> you don't want to burn your, your champions. So you've got to be very delicate with that. It's a situation by situation thing, I, I think. You can shoot yourself in the foot either way by not having a check writer that you can talk to or by making the, the internal champion feel like you're going around them. So it's multi-level sell, selling is challenging. One of the things that I think many people misunderstand about startups and entrepreneurship in general is they think that as the CEO or as the founder that our problem is the product or the technology. But what's really keeping us up at night is a lot of these interpersonal things of, okay, there's so-and-so in this organization. This is what motivates them. This is how they make decisions. I need to make him feel important and her feel important, but really I need to get to some higher level. And people see the results afterwards and someone was a big success or a big failure, but they don't realize the game inside the game. Absolutely. I mean, when I was at Eagle Claw uh, and, you know, our, our CEO there could uh, tell you, the uh, Bob Milam, he taught me a lot. He could tell you a lot about this. I'm very much a person that's like, it should be a mathematical answer. Like this either adds up to value creation or it doesn't, and that's our decision. But it's not the way it works, and it's, it is about those relationships and figuring out what matters to that person, what gets them a promotion, or what are they trying, how can you help them stay away from something that might be harmful to their career? And how do you get in the door to get the company to take that step to try out your product, especially if it's not an easy customer, but like uh, direct to consumer type thing where it's like, here, do the seven day trial. You know, if it takes some effort to implement, how, how do you do that? And that is the bulk of the time. Like the, even for the technology to prove itself, it needs some of these people to give it the time of day. And so you're, you're absolutely right on that. It's, it's figuring out how do I, hit what this person's looking for. And it's amazing that we're talking about cutting edge, AI technology, billion dollar industry that you're going after, huge multinational companies. And it comes down to these basic like human interaction skills that you've been learning since you were a small child and have to implement. And I imagine for you, it's like you're, you're an early stage, you start up, this enormous customer, very long sales cycle, you can't afford to offend anybody at any point in time. Like you need all of your deals to go to the finish line. Yes, no, that's exactly right. Um, so another challenging thing of selling to enterprises is that, you know, as a startup, you've got limited resources. You've got to try to keep all those people that are part of your cash burn, adding as much value as possible but you don't know when all these enterprises are gonna take their next step. And when they do, you need those people available. But if they take a little longer, you need other customers for them to work with. And so trying to keep that pipeline full, but at the right levels, you know, not overflowing is, is challenging. 
Okay, what would you say has been your biggest professional success and what has been your biggest professional failure? It's an interesting question because sometimes the things that look like success have a lot of luck and sometimes the things that look like failure were bad luck. I mean, it's um, I, I compare it to baseball a little bit in that you can hit like a soft ground ball and finds the right place and it's a base hit, or you can hit a, a line drive, but you hit it right at somebody and you're out. I really feel like the, the biggest success, what I would say more is I could tell you more about the cause of the successes. And that cause is just being extremely determined and persistent. And if somebody says, uh, I don't think we want to buy this, then you figure out a different way of, of flipping that, say, what if we do this and this? And just being doggedly determined. And eventually that's, if you get enough repetitions, that's going to lead to a successful outcome. I think probably biggest failure was probably not understand. I probably, when I walked into Synslytics, I was probably overconfident in my ability to sell a very technical product. Like it took me longer to get up to speed on the technology and then how to deliver that to customers, how to deliver the message of that value to customers than it should have. I, th I think maybe it shouldn't be surprising. Overconfidence will get us in any area we're in. Uh, so, so staying humble uh, and, and being doggedly persistent until you get there and, and taking as much coaching and feedback is, is really important. There's a nugget of wisdom in there that I want every entrepreneur to listen to twice. And that is whether it's an investor or a potential customer and they say, it's not a fit. Why? Ask why, document why, don't do it in an abrasive way, do it in a tactful way, but just the reason why is always your path to a yes. And whenever you get them to explain why, and I say step by step, they're giving you a playbook to get to yes. Yeah, absolutely. And even if you don't get them to yes, you've got a better chance of getting the next guy to yes because you you see what your flaw is. So I, I yeah, it is... Very important uh, when dealing with investors to not seem easily offended because if you are, then you're not going to get very straightforward feedback on what the flaws are. And the next best thing to a yes is somebody telling you why it's a no. The worst thing is just the, the no that doesn't have a reason behind it. Right. Well, is there any other advice that you would have for an early stage founder or how to get things off the ground, or maybe career advice that you would have for kids? I think on the career side, I think I would focus on the opportunities that give you the, the greatest chance to learn or the greatest chance to be around really good mentors and the, the greatest exposure um, to a lot of challenging products projects rather than being focused on cash. Because the... The money will come later once you're a little more senior because it's clear about how it's clear how much you've learned. But initially I would not be focused on 
well, what's the salary? Is this, you know, somebody else would pay me more. I, I don't think that's as big of a deal. Um, for the founders, I think it's probably pretty cliche, but everything's going to take you twice as long and twice cost twice as much as you think. And while you have to be so persistent in what you do and be all in, you've got to find a way not to wrap your identity around that business because you've got, depending on what it is, a certain level of control of whether it succeeds, but it's not total control. And you can't let those, it's just too hard on you personally if you take all those things to mean you are a failure if those things don't work out. Or, or you will just be miserable to be around when things aren't going well if you take all of those things to be a reflection of you. So as a founder, you're saying it's very important to not fully ride the emotional roller coaster, to find some way to smooth your emotional curve so that you can continue making the best decisions that you can for your business and that uh, you know, you're emotionally happy and capable of continuing on. Yeah. So, I mean, if you've got, if you've got a family, that family is hopefully very supportive of what you do, but you don't want to make it more taxing on them than it has to be. And I mean, I know there were, there were periods where I would wear every loss pretty hard and it was pretty hard to get over it. And you've got to get past that point or you're making life harder for yourself and for everybody around you. Yeah. You've been a part of a team that had a very large exit. What is that story in a nutshell? Yes. Yeah, so I wanted to join a startup so bad that even when I was here in Oklahoma City, my wife was pregnant with our first child, first grandchild for both sides of the family, all the families from Oklahoma. I wanted to join one so bad that I moved to Midland, Texas. So far West Texas, seven and a half hours away to join a team with no assets, no customers. I was employee number five. I had people that I knew that could, told me really great things about their experiences with the CEO, Bob Milam, and, and COO, Curtis Clark. And so I felt good about who I was going to join. And they thought they were probably 60 to 90 days away from getting something done, uh, the first customer. That fell apart a few weeks after my son was born. And, and so then it's like, we've got to scrap and find something else. And we ended up through cold calling into finding another customer. And I, I was over there to do presentations, Excel modeling, and a little bit of business development. But I got to, have, they gave me a lot of opportunities to do business development. We eventually got our first customer. And then we made a, a big, well, for us then, a, a big acquisition. That first customer didn't pan out. The big acquisition though, kind of set us up and that was one where um, I actually could not get the party we were acquiring from to answer phone calls. And so I went to a conference. I made sure I found other people there. I had a conversation with them and got on the list. And we ended up being able to acquire these assets. And so over time, they were looking for a commercial partner at Eagle Claw. And either people didn't want to take the risk of leaving their stock options behind or didn't want to move to Midland. And I was just getting more and more reps getting to do commercial work and, and Curtis and Bob treated me very well and eventually said, well, he's doing the work. Let's put him in this position. So I, I started leading the commercial operations. We, we, there was one other competitor that we were both about the same size 
is like one of us is going to end up buying the other one. And we ended up, we had great financial backing from, from NCAP Flat Rock and they supported us to acquire this company. And we went from being a good midstream startup to that somebody already in the area would add as a bolt-on to we became the big player out there where people that weren't in the Permian Basin, which in midstream, you had to be in the Permian Basin. If you weren't there, you could go acquire us and we were big enough by ourselves to be a great entry point. And so that was one of those things where two plus two equaled five. We made that acquisition and we thought we'd be running it for an, another few years. And actually we uh, sold less than a year later to Blackstone and then stayed on for a two year transition period uh, before moving back to Oklahoma. That felt like sprinting a marathon, but it was fun. The people were fantastic. I mean, I had, I had really talented people working for me, working above me, working around me. That was really a team family atmosphere. So it made the work much more enjoyable and the time much, much easier. It was exhausting, but a great experience. So you started with zero assets, zero customers, baby on the way. Uh-huh. You moved to middle of nowhere in Midland, Texas. Yes. And then how many years later until you guys were able to exit? We sold four years later. Four years. So zero customer, zero assets. And then what did you sell for? $2 billion. I would be very proud. <laughs> so this is where I told you that um, luck plays a large role. I feel like we had a really good team and we were, and we had great engineers and, and operations people and everything. I feel like that should have enabled us to be successful on some level. The fact that it was a $2 billion exit was we hit the market at the right time, you know, interested buyers then, just a lot of the ball bouncing our way. We should, I feel like, because have done well. Those really good stories, if anybody tells you there wasn't some luck involved, I, I think they're kidding themselves. Like I, I fully accept that a part of, a big chunk of our success had to do with luck. I had other friends that were doing very well and hit the market at exactly the wrong time and they went from things that would have been, hey, this was really good to, you know, a few years later, you know, an unmeaningful exit. Thank you so much for that story. I've been dying to know how you guys had that monster exit. I knew what the number was, but didn't realize that it was only four years and it started with zero assets and zero customers. So that's extremely impressive. And uh, so glad to have you a part of the Cortado Ventures family and in our portfolio we're super proud of the great work that you're doing with Senselytics and uh, looking forward to continuing the journey thanks Cody I'm excited about it all right it was a pleasure <laughs>